0: You know, I have really fond memories of my grandmother um, telling me stories uh, when I was a kid, and some of them have stayed with me forever. Um, Some of them I still kind of remember uh, pretty well, and, and I was just thinking about the power of storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I would say some of my, maybe not my earliest
1: memories, but some of my clearest memories as a kid were my dad telling me stories in particular. And for instance, we went through the, the Lord of the Rings series together the first time. And it wasn't even just that we were having sharing the, those experiences, those stories together, but he would do all the different voices and sing all the songs for like the elves and the dwarves and everything and made it a whole like narr- kind of immersive narrative experience that we had together. So even when I was older and I read those books again, it had a totally different kind of connotation than when I was younger and getting those kinds of stories from him. Welcome to another episode of the Reproductive Justice Happy Hour. I'm your host, Kristen. And I'm Suri, And we're here to help you find your Desi Videshi feminist happy place. And today we're going to talk about the topic of storytelling, in particular storytelling about abortion, which is a topic that is near and dear to our hearts.
0: Yeah, and um, I think it's, it's an important topic given the power of storytelling and how it has been used uh, over the last few years to both build a community of uh, women uh, who are sharing their abortion experiences, but also to advance uh, advocacy on abortion. And I wanted to begin today's episode by uh, using the example of um, a very powerful story that was shared by uh, Shivana Jarabar, um, a feminist activist, which was and, your shadow in our racing cast episode? I believe she was, yes. Um, and I would really encourage our listeners to go back to that episode um, and uh, check out her article as well, which is uh, available on Bustle. Um, and I think that story has stayed for uh, for from me because um, it was such a fresh narrative from a woman who was really talking about, um, you know, unapologetically about her uh, feminism, about her religious beliefs, uh, about her abortion experience. Um, And really just tying all of that together to say how her religion has actually not um, kept her from talking about issues that she passionately believes in, but has actually helped her to become more active uh, and more uh, committed to working on these issues.
1: And yeah, I, I love this story for all of the reasons that you've already shared. And I think in particular, I mean, she takes us through experiences she had in her childhood and then as a young woman and seeing some, like, double standards in her local temple, but also the things she loves about Hinduism and how, like, the stories of learning about different goddesses when she was growing up also influenced her in a positive way. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the takeaway from her narrative is just, like, abortion is the center of her, her article, but it was one important thing that happened in her life. And it's a, like a common experience a lot of women have that is integrated in their lives. It doesn't just happen somewhere iso- out there. Yeah, it's not an
0: isolated uh, experience, or right? Experience, yeah. Yeah, and I think abortion storytelling has really become uh, a powerful way to uh, build empathy around abortion, uh, to really uh, talk about the diverse um, experiences that women have when it comes to um, having an abortion. Um, and you know, there's also been a rise in um, you know the number of initiatives, for instance, that have been working uh, on abortion storytelling. You have We Testify, which Shibana works with. You have Exhale,
1: the One in Three campaign, Sea Change. A lot of work around um, around stories about abortion, and also we have Voice (laughs) Your (laughs) Abortion,
0: which was uh, what, which is India's first abortion storytelling platform. but also we have Melissa Madera's uh, *The Abortion Diary*. Uh, we have um, *Love Matters India*, for instance, sharing right. uh, abortion experiences. So there's been, a, you know, uh, I think a, a, a big uh, change in the way how abortion storytelling has really become this powerful uh, strategy to talk about abortion and um, advocate for abortion rights. Um, but maybe we should get back to the basics of storytelling around abortion and how did it really sort of. Uh, become a, a useful strategy for activists and storytellers um, to advance uh, a conversation and discourse on abortion, um, and how did it really also have implications on policy making around abortion?
1: One of the first times that we see abortion storytelling used as a strategy uh, to influence policy and legal change was in 1970 in a landmark case that was challenging New York State's abortion ban. And around the same time, there had been a lot of feminist uh, abortion speakouts and generally agitation about women who were... uh, upset that a lot of the so-called expert witnesses that are being called in legal cases about abortion um, weren't women, or in one case, for instance, it was uh, a nun that was called in to speak about uh, women's uh, reproductive health, which is interesting given that nuns aren't really supposed to have sex or have children. So it's uh, somewhat telling that this is the, the one woman who got to speak about this issue in court. So... In, in support of this case, the the lawyers were looking to get maybe ten or twelve women who would act as uh, who would give their testimony about the links they had to go to in order to access abortion, which was illegal at the time in New York. And even though uh, abortion had been sort of like a a silenced issue at the time and again it was not like something that women were legally supposed to access they had just an absolutely overwhelming response and eventually used the testimony of more than 100 women uh, in support of this case and they won the case and this yeah, laid the I, foundation for roe versus wade in the supreme court a few years
0: later um yeah i think that's very interesting because you know perhaps that was the first time anyone really asked women about their abortion experiences and maybe women had just been waiting for someone to ask that question. Like, what is it like for you to have an abortion when it's illegal? And what are some of the reasons that you might be wanting to have an abortion? And I think women were really looking that space to be able to share those stories. Um, so that's really interesting that you say that they had such an overwhelming response. But another interesting side note to the story, one of the lawyers who was fighting uh, the 9070 abortion ban uh, in New York was uh, Emily Jane Goodman, um, who was you know trying to secure all of these testimonies from women. Uh, and interestingly, in uh, the whole women's health case uh, from uh, Texas in June 2016 where um, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, you know uh, prevented uh, Texas from passing the abortion law saying that it did uh, pose an undue burden on women trying to access abortion health care. So
1: these were the, the so-called trap laws, which yes. were all of the medically unnecessary restrictions that were being imposed on abortion clinics to Say that oh, if they don't have the same kinds of um, like hallway width or surgical equipment that like a hospital would, then they're not allowed to perform abortion. Which is actually none of that's needed to perform a safe abortion,
0: right? And anyway, it, and it severely limited the the number of uh, providers or facilities that right. could provide abortion to women in Texas
1: because making those renovations is extremely expensive, and abortion clinics are usually operating on a shoestring budget anyway because of. Again, uh, political uh, the political football of funding to like include or not include abortion as part of women's health care.
0: Right. But uh, yes, getting back to Emily Jane Goodman, um, you know, in 1970, while she was trying to get all of these testimonies from women in 2016 for the whole women's health case from Texas, she was one of the women who actually submitted um, her abortion story. Uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, So it was kind of like an interesting full circle for her where she was trying to get stories to her, to the time where she was able to share her own story and influence a major policy decision um, or legal decision from the court.
1: Yeah, I mean it's both. It's both uh, amazing and really like kind of sad that more than forty-five years later, she's still. I mean, these women are still having to make the arguments that women are the best experts of their own lives and experiences. And in twenty seventeen, you know, as you said before, it's like we really need this on a T-shirt. Yes.
0: Um But where women still having to claim that they are, you know, the the storytellers of their own stories and, you know, their own narratives and have control over their own lives, um, which is constantly debated. <laughs> and
1: it just shows that we really haven't learned from our history that much, because as a lot of the accounts from the 1970 case demonstrated the it's not that restricting abortion or criminalizing it doesn't actually reduce the number of abortions but it does mean that the means women have to resort to in order to get abortion are unsafe and financially exploitative Um, for instance there was one woman who was an anthropology student and she looked up in her local like college library all of the like different folk remedies she could do to self-induce abortion and after consuming one of these concoctions that she had read about she got a rash so bad she was able to pass it off as German measles. And that actually allowed her to get an abortion because measles can contribute to fetal abnormalities. Um, so she found a, a loophole there instead of by accident, but she also could have killed herself. I mean...
0: Right. Um, yeah, and I think another very, um, you know, important aspect of storytelling is also that in 1970, these stories uh, was the first time that people were able to understand the social and cultural stigma and barriers that women uh, were facing uh, in terms of uh, getting an abortion, a safe abortion, right? I think before that, like you uh, rightly said, people relied more on like expert testimonies, which were, I guess, mostly men who were or medical nuns, doctors. Or which I'm nuns. not saying nuns aren't women,
1: <laughs> but it's an odd choice nevertheless. Um,
0: yeah, and I think people, and even like justices sort of like deliberating on these cases did not really understand what was the the silence and the shame and the stigma that women faced every day um, owing to the illegal uh, nature of abortion um, at that point, and even now. uh, And I think that's where the stories come in, where they really help people to understand a woman's experience of why she, for any reason, would want to have an abortion, but also understand um, and build empathy around, you know, someone who's trying to get that... um, Uh, abortion for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, and another significant finding of this case was just that they, you know, they were looking for 10 or 12 people and they had such an enormous response, like I don't even know like that if those 100 cases they chose, that might not have been the totality of women that they interviewed for the case. And understanding for the first time and publicly expressing how common abortion is as an experience that a lot of of them will have at one point in their lives, um, sometimes multiple times. Uh, but again, because of the silencing, it's like I think that I mean even now, it's like we probably all know somebody who has had an abortion, and, or we have had an abortion.
0: Yeah, um, one in three women in her lifetime will have an abortion, so it's right. It's, we'll have at least it's one. Pretty abortion. likely, we know someone who has had an abortion.
1: And you have this idea that somehow it's still a rare and a, a rare experience that should, you know, someone should be embarrassed about, and that's just not the case. So what we've learned from abortion storytelling over time and what advocates will often say about it is that women sh- must be able to talk about their abortions because these stories are really powerful and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the reasons that we think um, storytelling allows us to connect with one, each- one another about abortion uh, in a way that perhaps other types of activism don't, um, don't create those same sorts of spaces but uh, they also may form really compelling arguments for policy change, as we see in these two examples. And they can also serve to normalize abortion um, as an essential and legal health care service. So again, like showing like how common it is, and clearly women need it, because if safe and affordable abortion isn't an option, some pretty bad things can happen.
0: Yeah, and um, we, I think we should acknowledge that storytelling has uh, been a powerful way to advocate on various social issues. So it's not something that's very new to abortion per se. Uh, but abortion storytelling comes with its own um, you know specific uh, aspects that are worth exploring more in detail, um, which we will in the next segment. But um, we have been using Rewire for uh, basing a lot of these discussions on the historical nature Uh, of storytelling around abortion. So if our readers are interested in knowing more about the history, we will provide a link to the article um, on our website. So after that fascinating history of how storytelling uh, around abortion uh, sort of originated, I think it's uh, it's also worth talking about, uh, you know, one of the statements that you mentioned earlier, which was women are experts of their own lives, which is so true, Um, and somehow we so doubted all the time. But you know, it 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 raises an interesting question because uh, we say that yes, women uh, should be able to share their stories without judgment and stigma. Uh, it creates a way to uh, build empathy. It really tells people about what's happening in women's lives through women. Um, but we also know that abortion stories um, you know, sometimes have been used, uh, and perhaps sometimes rightly so, to um, uh, create a more normalized discourse on abortion, to reduce abortion stigma, and also to advance uh, political change around abortion. But it has been used by both pro-choice and anti-choice lobbies, uh, and sometimes used to advance their own vested interests and agendas in terms of how they perceive abortion as a political issue. Um, and my worry sometimes is that in in doing so, where, you know, abortion stories are being used by either side, um, we somehow lose uh, the storyteller, which is... The woman who is actually sharing her story, and she becomes uh, sort of a pawn in, you know, the bigger mm-hmm. political agenda that either side might have. And I was wondering what you thought about what we can really do when we say that we should honor the stories that women are sharing, but not just their stories, but women as storytellers themselves. Well, I think there's a number of practical
1: suggestions um, that we would like to highlight here, but I mean, I think that. At at the core, it's just like even though we know that these stories can be very very powerful and very effective means of uh, shifting public mindset about abortion or making a case for like a particular um, a particular legal challenge, the the story always has to belong to the storyteller, and it always has to be up to that person to decide like at least at, at least the first time they tell the story like how they intend for that story to be used. And unfortunately, you know, once a story is out there in the public domain, it's really hard to say what's going, like how that story is going to travel, like what the afterlife of that story is once it's published on Facebook or whatever. Like even if it's an anonymously uh, right. recorded story, um, but at the you know the very least we can do is honor the original um intent and desire of the storyteller when we are listening to their story and especially if we're going to be sharing that in a wider forum
0: yeah and i think in you know in addition to asking women if they would like to share their stories and many of them are actually really eager to share them we must also ask them if um if and how they would like us to share their story for instance Um, you know how much of the story do they really want out in the public domain for instance uh, what is the medium of storytelling that they would prefer? Um, that uh, activists or storytellers use to uh, share their stories. Like all of those questions are, I think, sometimes are overlooked. Once we have the story, we ha- we are like, okay, let's forget about the person who actually uh, owns that story, and you know, and then we kind of it gets a light of its own, and we kind of use it for various other uh, advocacy or um, you know different uh, strategies to advance uh, abortion discourse. And there's often resentment from women while their stories are being used, perhaps for um, sometimes a very positive uh, advancement of abortion rights. They're kind of lost in that whole gamut of storytelling.
1: Right. And I think, I mean, a critical part uh, on like both that advocates have to be aware of and doing in their own work and that storytellers need to, to know about beforehand is just ha- like preparing um, Preparing the storytellers for like a lot of the different outcomes that can happen, which I mean includes um, harassment or includes like having complicated feelings about your story in the course of telling it, even if you thought that you were uh, in an okay place to tell it before you started that conversation, and building support networks of non-judgmental and vetted individuals that can offer um, that can offer all kinds of support. I mean it might be legal support. Uh, In a harassment case, it might just be a network of other women who have had abortions or also shared their stories about their abortions to lean on each other in what can be a a difficult um, process sometimes. And having, if if desired by the storyteller and as much as possible, an ongoing engagement with them after they share their stories. And so they're not just providing this... um, this evidence for a case or like this example of like you know see abortion is not all bad um and so that ideally the storyteller uh understands that she's being seen as a full person and not just um as political fodder for one side of the argument or another
0: and i think yeah it's it is also important that uh you know the woman or whoever is sharing their abortion story has the right to um know how that story is being used. Um, and, they, and they also have the right to um, not use that story if they feel it, you know, it's not sort of aligning with their beliefs uh, in terms of their politics around abortion. Um, and these are, I think, more ethical questions for activists or advocates working on abortion rights. Um, but as EXALE calls it, um, the ethical storytelling framework which is so important now that we know that anti-choice lobby has actually co-opted a lot of language that was initially used by pro-choice abortion rights advocates um, to talk about women's health, for instance, has now been co-opted by anti-choice activists. Um, And I think they've really kind of studied these stories and testimonies from women uh, and somehow adapted it to their own um, vested interest. which is dangerous, I think, and it um, it is a great disservice to women who are actually, um, you know, coming forward with their stories, um, and in in a way being brave about these stories at the cost uh, at the personal cost or um, of being banished or abandoned or, um, you know, some, some of the other repercussions that can occur if you share your abortion story publicly.
1: Yeah. So another example of that in a like a landmark legal case was in the 2007 U.S. Supreme Court case, Gonzalez v. Carhart, where the majority opinion was swayed by what was actually an anti-choice brief. But it was um, a brief that contained um, narratives about abortion that were very had been very traumatizing. they were very negative. And the I think it was. I want to say it was Kennedy who swayed the opinion, but in, in writing his majority opinion, he said that it was because he felt this empathetic connection to women's stories that he thought that abortion should actually be more restricted. So the, so the stories say, worked, the actually. The stories worked. like yeah, They were effective. But just not for the, but not, the
0: benefit of women.
1: <laughs> well, right. Not toward um, like making abortion more available to a larger number of people. So, I mean, yeah, we should be cautious about... Uh, when language of like about women's health or human rights is being used for used for ends that don't really have social justice in in mind um but i also on this point i i want to uh bring to our attention the fact that it's not just opponents of abortion that can use stories unethically Um, a lot of times advocates for abortion can be very pushy or have like an agenda in mind for how they want to use stories and in trying to, I mean, maybe they have good intentions, but in trying to get a particular kind of narrative within a particular time frame, they they only want women to talk about the positive aspects of abortion. Um, so, for example, Melissa Madera, who is the founder of the Abortion Diary podcast, has said that a lot of times in pro-choice circles, she actually has a really hard time because in trying to get those particular narratives the movement has really um, actually ended up stigmatizing other people's experiences because the only experiences that they want are those that fit into this box of like, I made this choice and everything's fine now. I don't have any complicated feelings about it. I'm never sad. I'm never upset. Uh, I didn't have grief. And that's not realistic because women have a lot of different feelings about their abortions. And sometimes it means grieving and um, and Milsa has also uh, discussed in or the context of her podcast, uh, like post-abortion rituals, for instance, that a lot of they might not be religious rituals per se, but that a lot of women find that they, they want to do something to mark the occasion of the abortion and to process their feelings.
0: Yeah, and feelings around abortion can also evolve over time. So right. maybe at one time I was grieving and then um, I am totally fine with it or the other way around where I was totally fine with it. But now after years um, you know, of having had the procedure, maybe I am grieving in some way or I am... Uh, um, not entirely happy with my decision. So, I mean, I think storytelling is really also a way uh, for women to be able to grapple with these complex emotions that they might experience um, after having had an abortion. Um, and, you know, pro-choice activists can also do a disservice when we do not acknowledge uh, these diverse experiences that women um, can and do have uh, an abortion. Yeah, and on that note, I think
1: it's another important aspect of like staying in touch or providing support to the storyteller after the initial story has been shared. Again, like as much as is possible and as much as the storyteller desires, because it could be that in the moment um, she's totally fine and doesn't need any uh, outside resources or to be connected with a network of people. And then who knows, maybe six months later, she has a different feeling about it because something else has happened in her life or she's just had more time to think about it. And if we're only interested in getting that story and not interested in the person who's telling that story, then we're not really doing our jobs.
0: Right, and I think part of the ethical storytelling is also, again, putting the storyteller at the center of that storytelling process. Um, and what you mentioned, I think we were talking about it earlier as well. Um, you know even the follow-up process after the story has been shared, it's really important to maybe check with the woman or the person who's sharing their abortion story about how is it that you would like me to follow up with you? Maybe, like you said, could be that they don't want to be in touch at all, or they might want some help with counseling, for instance, uh, or they might want to connect with other women who have had, you know, similar experiences. So I think all of that is part of the follow-up process. And these are some of the things that we really have to keep in mind uh, if we are using storytelling as a way to advance the discourse on abortion.
1: So just chiming in here with some tips for ethical storytelling on abortion. So if you're an advocate, uh, please remember to support the full story or the person who is sharing their experience with you. Uh, Prepare your storytellers and provide support for privacy and against um, harassment and the response they might get from the media. You should offer some sort of compensation. uh, Whether or not your storyteller chooses to accept it, you should at least give them that option. And ongoing engagement, as you mentioned before, can be a crucial support of a storyteller feeling that they are valued for more than just their particular narrative. These tips are brought to you by We Testify.
0: So abortion stories are actually never just about abortion. I think they're so much um, more uh, because they really shed light on uh, the varied experiences that women um, have with regard to the multiple um, identities that they, women and people, actually, that they uh, inhabit across different times and context. Um, and I think that lends itself really well to the whole reproductive justice framework, where we are really trying to uh, understand the, the, the embedded interlinked op- oppressions that people face, um, but also really bring to light the nuances uh, that women... Um, experience when they are trying to make a decision around abortion. So it's not just that they're like, oh, I had an abortion and this is how I felt. But it kind of starts with uh, a multitude of things that they have experienced in their life before having an abortion and after having an abortion, right? Um, And I think it's really important because it also allows us then to not look at women as a, a monolithic group. Uh, We um, can also think of uh, stories, for instance, coming from queer women if they had 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 an abortion, or a sex worker, or a Dalit woman, how she would experience um, that uh, part of her life very differently than, say, a single woman coming from an urban location or an upper caste. Um, Or women of color in, uh, for instance, Texas, who uh, faced uh, perhaps a disproportionate burden on trying to access abortion services compared to white women in Texas, uh, who may um, face similar hurdles. But uh, sometimes it's easier for them to kind of travel to these communities Mm -hmm. because they are closer to where abortion services are available compared to women of color.
1: Yeah, you're touching on a couple of really important points here. I mean, and this is like, again, the point that a lot of mainstream um like pro-choice or feminist movements often miss and as we discussed in the race and caste episode this is because sometimes or like often too often they are led by white or upper caste women who are from as you say wealth- wealthier social locations um so in making the fight about abortion just about abortion and saying this is the only important thing that happens in the lives of many women uh, we really miss an opportunity to understand the context of how uh, how difficult and like did all, all the different kind of like nuanced complications um, women might experience just to kind of get through their lives and and live them as they would like and to uh, like have the power to be the experts of their own lives.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we have been talking a lot about storytelling today, and here are some quick reminders brought to you by We Testify for Storytellers. Your story is your story.
1: Meaning that you get to share when, if, how, and where you're going to tell your story, and that should be a collaborative process with the advocate.
0: You don't have to answer all the questions. Do your best not to perpetuate stigma when
1: telling your story because all abortion experiences are valid, even those that differ from yours
0: use i statements
1: don't make up data so no alternative facts please and
0: don't read the comments because you know how that goes because
1: people are horrible just in general but especially when it comes to things like abortion make sure you have your community care plan in place and that means prioritizing your own self-care as well so drink water take your meds and call your person if you need some extra support
0: An interesting example of what you're saying is i think the abortion diary podcast which is really a space for women to uh share their abortion experiences and their lives uh with all its imperfections um without being held hostage to any one particular perspective or political agenda and it really gives women that space uh Uh, to you know honestly share what they uh, experience with regard to their abortion um, stories um, without feeling and any shame or judgment from one particular uh, side of the story yeah and so then when melissa speaks
1: about the reasons that she had for starting the podcast um she and yeah
0: we are talking about melissa (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) this podcast um she frames it both in in terms of like coming from an you know, intersectional perspective, like she didn't see any stories that actually um, related to her experience like as a first-generation Latina, as a Dominican, as a bisexual woman, and as somebody who had an abortion, like she um, saw that there was a real gap in the kinds of like very linear narratives that were being portrayed. And also, as you're saying, like ones that didn't already have an agenda in mind. It's like, can't there just be a space to for women who've had abortions to share information about that and to support one another and so given that she was saying that there are podcast about just about everything else she decided that she would start one about abortion storytelling
0: yeah and uh, it's, it's yeah it's really fascinating because uh you know she's really using the podcast now as a way to build a community of women uh who can connect to each other because she does oh. this both on and offline we should mention right and um and she's really able to do this and i think this is Uh, very important for us because as podcast hosts uh, we are also um, storytellers in a way Um, and we are also uh, using podcasting to connect to other people and talk about issues that are not openly talked about Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about what are our thoughts on using podcasts as a way to uh, do some storytelling yeah I mean It's podcast is I guess as a medium,
1: it's sort of like both a new and an old technology. I mean, you think of back decades ago, it used to be that people would kinda gather around a shared radio and they would be experiencing, um I don't know if they did the same thing in India, but I know in the like the nineteen thirties and forties in the United States they'd have like serial uh plays, like tele like teleplays, radio plays that would be um, you know, before television was a thing, that's what people would all kind of gather around and and then you know talk about like that was what was going on yeah I think that
0: used to happen in India too because there were were a few radio shows that were like hugely popular people would come together and engage in this collective listening sessions right so
1: everyone has these like cultural touchstones but you know I think that since podcasts have sort of um, what shall we say like there's sort of a a low barrier for entry (laughs) that if you are somebody who has access to the internet and a microphone and a a laptop with free software you can create your own um your own show about just about anything so it's been i mean it's interesting sort of like democratizing that space for creating dialogues on different topics but i think what is common uh in both you know the older iterations of radio shows and podcasting as we have it today there's something about the the intimacy of listening to somebody. Talk, it's almost as if they're talking directly to you. or in the case of you have a lot of podcasts that are hosted by people who are, who are friends. And so that, that friendship comes through in the conversations they have with each other. And you know, even if they might have some sort of like a gender or script they're, they're sticking to, it's sort of a more natural form of communicating um, than if you're watching a video, a video or like the, the, the organization is saying like we're t- intending this video to do X goal
0: yeah um and i think it goes back to the conversation we had on i think one of our very first episodes of why we were starting a podcast right right? you know since both of us are huge fan of podcasts we almost feel like and we listen to these very dedicated podcasts too um so we almost feel like we are in a relationship (laughs) we are we have a relationship with our podcast host um and it kind of again builds that intimacy of where you're listening to them and you're like oh they're telling me something and i want to listen to it right um, and, it gave, and it gives you that privacy to do that um, and also learn new things. Um, and, you know, and again, like, it may not be uh, first-hand uh, uh, accounts, for instance, of abortion stories, but even if it's someone who you're listening to on a regular basis and they're sharing these stories, like you were saying earlier, um, you are more likely to sort of uh, relate to it and you um, maybe can identify with some of the experiences that are being shared. Right. And so, I mean, what Melissa's doing is somewhat, I mean, it's
1: actually very unusual in that she's sharing a lot of different stories um, week to week. So the theme is the same, but the, the narratives uh, and the voices are changing all the time. But in the case of these other podcasts um, that where, as you were saying, we build a relationship with the host and we look forward to hearing how they're going to frame different issues every week uh, and what their perspectives are on that. And I think for this reason, not that there's anything wrong with with writing an article or creating an infographic that shares a story. And I think those are important media that should also be available to storytellers um, and can be very powerful and and shareable in in that particular moment. But the advantage of a podcast is that because you're like coming back to these um, similar topics from week to week and you are looking forward to hearing your host take on current events as they go you can really um, build sort of the, the text of, of the narrative over time in a way that I think you don't have to give give your listener everything at once, you know, and especially for issues that are more controversial or divisive, such as abortion, I feel like there is a way to sort of, no, I don't, I don't want to say that you're like babying your listeners or easing them into it, but you can kind of go in in different ways around an issue and through an issue and maybe it, the point does not connect with somebody the first time around but you frame it in a different way later on and then there's like that aha moment of like oh and I, and also that they've been hearing this over time from somebody that they they trust and they enjoy listening to i think that if you get listeners who are actually committed to um sticking with your podcast over a long period of time then there's there's something like a potential for like that kind of sustained engagement for a story that you don't necessarily get with those other formats
0: yeah and that element of trust is i think so important um in podcasts being used as a way to uh drive uh storytelling on abortion, right? Um and it kind of also reminded me of uh, this another recent research that was put out by uh the Sea Change program that does a lot of work on um studying uh and coming up with tools to uh, reduce abortion stigma, uh which is precisely this whole element of trust and using that contact theory um to um, to allow people and specifically women in this case through a book club uh, to share their diverse experiences um, and I think the, the study found that you know, if women were able or sharing their first uh, account experiences it was more likely that you know, uh, women would have less amount of stigma and judgment towards others' abortion experiences and I think in a way podcasts sort of mirrors that as well Uh, regardless of whether it's a woman sharing her own story on an abortion diary podcast or it's a host that you regularly listen to and they're driving a discussion on abortion Um, if there's an element of trust and there's this uh you know sense of uh empathy you can really have uh uh, you can really influence the way people think about abortion and change mindsets and attitudes around abortion (laughs) Today's RJ word of the day is ethical abortion storytelling. Ethical storytelling is a practice that puts the person back into the center of the storytelling process and ensures that her rights, needs, and leadership are supported and respected throughout the process. This definition is brought to you by a story sharing guide for ethical advocates, published by Exale. So we have talked a lot about uh, the history of storytelling, um, the different facets of abortion storytelling, uh, medium of storytelling, um, and I was wondering maybe we can talk a little bit about what's happening with abortion storytelling in India particularly. Yeah, and um, the answer
1: is sort of not a lot yet. That is true. We're sort of a (laughs) nascent
0: stage. Uh, But perhaps a good time to start thinking of the the different uh, aspects of this discussion that we have had over the past uh, hour or so um, around storytelling so that we Mm -hmm. don't make the same mistakes and maybe learn a more uh, ethical way of storytelling when it comes to not just abortion issues but reproductive issues in general.
1: Yeah, I think a frustration that you and I have um, have shared doing work around abortion in India is that, uh, you know, on the one hand, we, we do want there to be spaces for stories to be shared publicly and venues that more people are going to read or be exposed to. Um, however, when it comes to trying to liaise with journalists from, you know, more mainstream publications about um, this idea that um, we would like to talk, it's not even like sharing somebody's narrative already, but just like, writing something about abortion, then the the request is always something along the lines of, oh, good, so you have these kinds of stories ready to go for me, and I need like I need three stories on these kinds of topics from these sorts of people, and can you have them to me yesterday?
0: Yeah, and that has been my experience, especially through uh, the Voice, the abortion storytelling platform, where uh, people often from the media have just called me up to say, hey, do you have any abortion stories? Uh, you know, I would like to just put them together and I'm going to put it out and publish it without really understanding the context or really knowing anything about the woman whose experience mm-hmm. they're planning to share. Um, and I think the other point is also uh, what kind of stories actually do get featured in uh, mainstream media when it comes to abortion. Um, in India, especially over the last few months, um, and I think over the past year really, there have been a slew of cases of uh, minor Uh, Women below the age of 18 uh, often rape victims uh, trying to uh, seek abortion by approaching the the Supreme Court because abortion in India is only legal until um, 20 weeks Um, and often these pregnancies are beyond that uh, uh, time limit. And so, the way these stories are reported in the media are often very sensationalized. Um, And of course, there have been tons of women who have approached the Supreme Court or uh, courts in other states to kind of uh, seek abortion access. But the ones that make it to the mainstream media are often the ones that are very sensational or have very sort of, uh, you know, mortifying stories to tell of why women are seeking abortion. Um, And so, it I think it leads to a certain kind of perception among people that only certain kind of women or only certain kind of circumstances validate uh, seeking an abortion. And I think that is so dangerous because, again, we lose out on the diverse and the very, um, uh, you know, the normal nature of like abortion that women um, have as part of their lives and reproductive uh, lives. Uh, it's not something that's an isolated event, but the way the media pushes that narrative, it seems like something that is the only thing that their life revolves around.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree, and we don't want to make it seem like we're just picking on Indian journalists for this, because I think there's some common themes that um, resonate. So, for instance, in some recent research that Sea Change also released, yeah, um, journalists, even journalists who are interested in publishing on abortion. Uh, face a lot of barriers to doing so um, to doing so well and doing so as often perhaps as they would like. And I mean part of this is you know, steer storytelling on a deadline. So the kinds of sustained ethical engagement with storytellers that we have been um, suggesting is should actually be central to this whole process is often not available if you're, Trying to um, meet an editor-imposed deadline, and especially I mean now that we have like a twenty-four-seven news cycle and a lot of mediums are being posted online, was there's just I think that the the hectic pace of news has uh, in some ways like harms sort of a a more thoughtful uh, mm-hmm. framing for for issues that are like more controversial. Um, and also, you know, another point that's brought up is I mean, journalists do face harassment for bringing these issues to light. And they might face harassment in their workplace, um, but they also face ar- harassment online uh, after publishing the stories and their names are now attached to these issues. So that's something that we need to be cognizant of and figure out a way to you know, also protect media persons um, or offer support for them if they make sure they're prepared to tell these stories in, um, in the form in which they're working.
0: Yeah. I think it also reminds me of the point that perhaps we haven't touched upon a lot, but who is the audience that we are catering to, right, when we are thinking about these abortion stories? So um, for mainstream media, if the idea is to really uh, create awareness around abortion as a women's right and, uh, you know, connecting it to issues of bodily autonomy and um, control over their uh, reproductive lives... um, i think the story then has to kind of follow that uh, follow that uh, agenda as well i mean that i think that's what mainstream media should be doing is to create awareness around the law right and and we're talking about barriers. how the journalist
1: is framing the story not what the storyteller who's had an abortion has right, to has yeah. to
0: say um and yeah and if uh, and i often feel the agenda is very different right the agenda is to just um get the more eyeballs as possible to a story um and then also like i think it influences in some ways it also influences the way uh the the judiciary decides on these cases right so often i think the justices rely on what's being written about a particular um person who is seeking abortion um and to try and judge whether the public is sympathetic to them getting what they are asking for um yeah and i mean i don't want to say that they are basically making the decision just based on what's being written about them. But I think it plays into how these decisions are made. So if the popular opinion is that a woman, um, especially if it's a girl who's uh, 13 years old raped uh, and is 26 weeks pregnant, has to get an abortion, that I think that will kind of play into the decision somehow. Um, so we have to be really careful of how these stories are reported on and then how not just the public but other institutions uh, in the society are perceiving that abortion experience, and a lot of the stories
1: that um, you know might illustrate how common an, an abortion experience is, and so like how like kind of um, I don't know non sensational of an experience it can be for many women. Those aren't the ones that are gonna get the eyeballs, right? Um, so so yeah, I mean, where where are those spaces to to tell those kinds of stories where? you know perhaps it was a non-event and a woman took um you know had a medical abortion when she was eight weeks pregnant and everything went fine and then she went on to,
0: yeah, there <laughs> to was live her no life and maybe she already aftermath. has children maybe she
1: doesn't maybe she has children in the future and and that was that so
0: yeah I, th- I think really the failure to kind of present the the fuller picture of a woman's decision-making ability about their reproductive trajectories right that's that's missing and somehow if we just you know kind of bring it to that one singular event that happened uh, and change the women's life forever um, that's what captures people's interest I guess and so somehow the stories which are not as sensational or as surprising or as traumatic never make it to the media uh, but that doesn't mean that Abortion is not a normal experience for a lot of women. Kristen, what is something that really annoys you?
1: Hmm. So recently, I've been really stuck on the the way that a lot of British people say the word pasta.
0: How do they say it? Pasta?
1: Which makes absolutely no sense to me because they're so much closer to Italy than a lot of the rest of us, and yet that's how they choose
0: to say the vowel in that word. Um. Yep, agree. That's strange, but... Maybe not annoying. I suppose that's true. Uh,
1: when I think of something that really annoys me, and in fact actually like really pisses me off, it's that a lot of people today can't access safe and affordable healthcare that includes abortion.
0: That totally pisses me off too, but you know someone who is actually working towards improving access to abortion for people everywhere? INROADS, the International Network for the Reduction of Abortion Discrimination and Stigma.
1: And we love them even more because they are the sponsors for
0: this episode of the Reproductive Justice Happy Hour. Inroads, making inroads on abortion stigma for a healthier, happier, and more just world. Find out more on their
1: website and So I think that since we're sort of at a pivotal juncture for thinking about abortion storytelling in India and what that might mean, it would be worthwhile to... contemplate a few different strategies that um that might be effective in a different context and especially because like while you know we knew you and i would both argue that mainstream media should change some of their tactics and framing for discussing abortion we can't just rely on these news outlets for doing uh, the work of ethical storytelling so some of the different things that uh might work for different people include um, you know abortion speak out so we mentioned this at the outside of the episode um, what women in in 1970 ended up like finding really and um, em- I hate the word use the word empowering because that's a loaded word but they found it uh, a supportive and productive space for beginning a public conversation about abortion that then led to those later testimonies or we know some organizations that have recently been hosting spoken word events where abortion is one of the topics that people are are sharing poems about, for instance. And so another way of uh, speaking about abortion in public that uh, familiarizes people with, with the concept and how common it is like in a, in a very different, um, perhaps more approachable way. Um, or we talked about the book club method. Um, again, this is something that might be uh, a collective experience in a shared conversation that takes place over time. Um, rather than you're just reading a sensationalized event and then you're just sort of like shocked by that you don't know what to do with it you actually have a back and forth with other people who might also have complicated feelings about abortion um, and be able to hear what's going on inside their heads about it because it's something that's so silenced a lot of times you don't even like broach the you don't even say the word out loud Um, and you know for some women the one-on-one interview method might be the best option if they feel comfortable doing that and they can find somebody that they can have uh, that sort of intimate conversation with. Um, And, of course, we have podcasts as another medium for... um, Sharing stories, but also... Sharing and listening to stories.
0: Yeah, and let's not also forget perhaps the more old-school method of someone writing their story out, right? Right, of course. In blogs and... um, And
1: people are doing this. I mean, I'm seeing it more and more often...
0: So yeah, I think, Indian authors. Yeah, and I think we do want to reiterate the fact that there's no one right way of you know sharing your stories. Right. Uh and also often we need a combination of these strategies right. to really work together to be able to raise consciousness and awareness around Um, abortion, um, and other social issues. So what we call is the basket of choices for storytelling. (laughs) You know, give these different options or enable women to uh, have these different options when it comes to storytelling is also very much a part of uh, ethical storytelling uh, process.
1: So that's uh, the end of the story, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, No, of course, we're only joking. Because this is the beginning of what we hope is a long conversation uh, that we have with you all over, over the
0: next series of episodes. So if you liked today's episode on storytelling, we would love to hear back from you. Tell us uh, what was something that you found insightful or something that kind of sparked your interest in storytelling. We also accept
1: constructive criticism if there's something that you didn't like about the episode or something that you uh, would like us to address in a future episode on a similar topic.
0: Yes, we would love to uh, get all sorts of inputs and feedback from you. Um, And of course, keep in touch with us over Facebook, email, and our website. um, On which you can
1: find additional resources about abortion storytelling and the meaning of ethical storytelling if that's something you're interested in. Share this episode with fellow storytellers and story lovers in your life.
0: And don't forget to join us for the next RJ Happy Hour.
1: Your feedback and support means a lot to us. And you can find us on our website, rjhappyhour.com, Facebook as Voice Your Abortion, or email us at hello at rjhappyhour.com with any comments or questions about what you've heard, or things you'd like us to touch on in future episodes. Bye for now!